Exchange. I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Apple's alarm, the tech giant forecasting weaker sales due to the coronavirus outbreak. Looming layoffs, banking giant HSBC announcing 35,000 job cuts. And Walmart's wobble, Q4 earnings disappointing after slower sales in December. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to have you with us. I want to start with Apple this morning. What's that phrase? One bad apple can spoil the barrel. Well, I can tell you if the global sentiment right now is a barrel, Apple's forecasted slower sales is certainly spoiling it. U.S. futures are lower at this moment. It's the first trading day of the week, of course, following the long weekend. Softer earning numbers from the retail giant Walmart, perhaps also having a little bit of an impact on sentiment. Though I'm just watching the stock pre-market, and I think it's now a touch higher. We'll dig through the numbers in a second. Got to remember here, the S&P and the Nasdaq finishing last week at record highs. We are vulnerable. We have to be vulnerable to uh, news, bad news from big corporate giants. So I'm not sure we should be surprised in light of what we're seeing over in Asia. European stocks under pressure here as well. The tech stocks bearing the brunt. German stocks, though, uh, some of the key underperformers. German economic sentiment plunging this month on those coronavirus fears. What about Asia? A mixed bag. I'll give you the good news first. China stocks gaining here. The Shanghai Composite up almost 3% over the last five trading sessions. The country announcing it will waive tariffs on almost 700 U.S. imports. That's the largest tariff exemption to date. On the downside, though, Hong Kong stocks weaker amid really weak data on activity, specifically at Hong Kong ports in January. Remember, that's long before the coronavirus outbreak hit. Japanese stocks, meanwhile, also adding to the week's losses. Recession fears, as we've discussed already this week, front and center. Those today's big losers in Japan include some of the big Apple suppliers like TDK, Tokyo Electron, all hit by that Apple sales forecast warning. Shares of chip giant Taiwan Semiconductor falling almost 3%. Apple is that company's largest customer. Let's get to the core of the drivers today because we're going to start with Apple. Shares down 2% pre-market, warning that they will miss guidance this quarter due to the coronavirus outbreak. Claire Sebastian joins us now. They've got supply chain constraints. We know stores have been closed over a period. It's Chinese consumer demand. I have to say, I'm not surprised by this, Claire. I'm kind of surprised investors are. Yeah, Julia, this uh, I think we can see with the, the, the disruption that we saw throughout last week, even as factories and, and workers were supposed to return, uh, that this was perhaps to be expected. A couple of key lines here from uh, the Apple release on this. They say that their, their plants are back up and running, but there's, there's a slower return to normal conditions than they had anticipated. This shows that what we've seen across the board, there's a patchwork of local regulations uh, that are impacting this. There's workers trying to return uh, due to sort of tra travel and transport restrictions. So that's clearly 
uh, impacting Apple. And the other thing, Julia, which is crucial for consumers is worldwide iPhone supply will be temporarily constrained. Not could be, will be temporarily constrained. Now, we're not seeing it yet. I had a quick look at the uh, the Apple store in the US. There's no real delay for uh, shipments of iPhones, but, but that could happen if this persists. And as you say, uh, this is also a demand side uh, story for, for Apple. Their stores remain disrupted in China. Again, uh, I had a quick look at the website uh, in Beijing. The, the five stores there are open but operating shorter hours. There are a couple of stores still closed in Shanghai. Now, this could mean that some of the demand shifts online. Apple's uh, online store, of course, operates in China. And it could, of course, mean that pent-up demand shifts to the coming quarters. A lot of analysts say that this will be a temporary factor, as Apple itself says, and they will see that coming in the quarters to follow. But I think it's interesting to note Apple did not issue new guidance, which just shows there's still a level of uncertainty here. Yeah, and they already had a wide level of guidance before because they said, look, we're uncertain about what the forecast is going to be here. I have to say, though, Claire, when I when I saw this one and I've already raised the point, I thought we kind of should have been expecting this. But my second point was I cast my mind back to January of 2019 when they said, look, we're really concerned about Chinese demand. When we finally got the numbers, they were a lot better than expected. Conservatism. This is a company that tends to err on the side of cautiousness about their forecasts anyway. Yeah, I think given uh, the track record of this company in, 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 you know, beating to the upside, they certainly want to try to continue that. Uh, and last year, of course, yes, this was a, a China-related story as well. I think China, a critical but but also somewhat fragile link uh, in the chain for Apple. And, and Julia, you're absolutely right. If you look at Apple's performance since then, of course, the warning last year was about uh, potential for slowing demand for iPhones in China. Since then, the stock has basically almost doubled. I'll just let that sink in for a second for a company Apple's size. The, uh, the company has, has, has launched new iPhones, which have been well received. They have AirPods, they have watches, services uh, is a growing part of the business. And in the last earnings quarter, uh, they hit a record and said that iPhone uh, demand was actually now recovering. So this is a company that is really firing on all cylinders at the moment. If there was ever perhaps a time that it could weather a black swan event like this, then perhaps that's now. And as I said, a lot of analysts do expect this to be a temporary uh, sort of disruption for the company. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, actually. And I stand corrected, Claire Sebastian, given the importance of China to this company. They are only down 2% free market. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on to our next driver. HSBC announcing a major shakeup earlier today. The bank planning to cut 35,000 jobs over the next three years. We're talking 15% of the global workforce. It's also set to shed $100 billion in assets and scale back operations in the US and Europe. Anna Stewart joins us now on this story. That's a significant operation that we're talking about here, an Asia pivot in terms of their operations and, and thousands and thousands of job cuts. Tough challenge here, Anna. Very tough, dramatic headline figures. Perhaps not that surprising, though. Uh, such a big price tag to this big restructuring plan, over $7 billion. And that is why we're seeing profit plunging around a third last year from the year before. As ever, as you said, though, the human cost is the one that really worries people. 35 thousand jobs being cut, some 15% of the company. Uh, and the plan also includes closing one and three retail branches in the US, shrinking the investment bank. You mentioned shedding $100 billion worth of assets and just a major simplification actually of the whole structure. 
question is, is it enough? That's always a big question when, when these plans are announced. Looking at the share price at the moment, down some 6%, suggests investors aren't that convinced. Although I have to say the two-year suspension uh, of share buybacks isn't doing much for investor sentiment either. Julia? Yeah, and that's a great point, I think, as well. When you're talking about a company that's going to knock out a third of its retail network, halve its trading operations in the United States and sell that kind of assets, you've got to find a buyer here for these assets too. Who's going to run this ship, Anna? That's my question. There was speculation that perhaps Mr. Quinn would stay on, the interim CEO. Now the speculation he won't. This is a super tanker to turn around. Who leads? It's a highly unusual sort of event, really, when you think about it. They ousted their last CEO last summer. That is so normal before you do a big restructuring plan. But usually you would have a permanent CEO in place by now. And Noel Quinn has been there for many, many years. He is the interim chief exec. The fact that he hasn't been confirmed is suggesting perhaps he won't get that title ultimately. Now, that undermines confidence in the plan itself. Will a new CEO take it in a different direction? Will they execute this plan as it's been announced? Also, it just suggests maybe a weak or divided board. Lots of speculation there. And I think that's why we're seeing that share price looking a little bit wobbly as well. Uh, Some analysts suggesting that perhaps they wanted to test out the market on the plan. Well, that hasn't looking, it hasn't gone that well this morning, I'd say. Uh, And more sceptical still, perhaps he's a scapegoat, you know, announcing 35,000 job cuts. Perhaps a new CEO uh, then takes up the mantle and has a clean slate. Uh, The chairman does say that they will get a new CEO in place within the original time frame, which is between now and August. Julia? Yes, proof will be in the pudding, a British word between two Brits. Anna Stewart, thank you so much for that. All right, we're going to move on and talk Walmart's numbers now because those earnings disappointed too on weaker than expected December sales. E-commerce sales, however, rocketing a net 35%, slightly softer than the last quarter, but it's still some monster numbers. Paul and Monica joins me. Paul, what do you make of these numbers? Yeah, I think Walmart had good numbers, Julia, but they Mm. weren't fantastic. And I think that's the problem potentially for Wall Street, although at last check, Walmart shares were actually trading a little bit higher pre-market, despite that uh, Apple warning that might be dragging down the rest of the market. What's interesting here is that, yes, 35% growth in e-commerce is stellar, but that's down from about 43% in the holidays a year ago. So we are seeing a bit of a deceleration. Obviously, Walmart competes with not just Amazon, but Target, which has been resurgent as of late. So slightly disappointing. And, and the holidays, I think there are some potential uh, you know, warning signs here. Toy sales were not that great, clothing, video games. So I think that there are some worrisome signs for the retail industry writ large as a result of these uh, Walmart numbers. Yeah, it's funny. I couldn't agree more with you. And then I look at the same store sales and they still managed to knock out 1.9% growth. Yeah, it's only that. But in this kind of environment and the challenges, as you've pointed out, I, I kind of would argue that's not bad. What worries me about this? No forecast, no adjustments being made at this stage for the impact of the coronavirus outbreak. Should we be yeah, more worried th- about that? I I agree. I think it's a bit puzzling that Walmart is saying at this point they are obviously keeping an eye on supply chain issues in China, but that there is no reason to adjust their outlook because of the coronavirus just yet. And when you see what Apple said last night about the coronavirus and what's happening to that stock as a result, 
I think a lot of people are perplexed that Walmart still wouldn't be willing or able to share some more color about the potential negative impact from the coronavirus on its sales. And, you know, obviously not just a supply chain issue, but also China is becoming a bigger market for Walmart through a partnership with uh, JD.com. You know, it's interesting, and I want to get back to one of the points that you made about delivery and the infrastructure and the challenges of some of the other big players. I think we could argue what sets Walmart apart here is their delivery infrastructure and allows them to to challenge the likes of Amazon and Kroger, specifically with grocery delivery and grocery shopping where they've made this big push and it's a tiny fraction of online sales i think it's around two to three percent in the united states back home in the uk that's 15 percent what do we think about this opportunity for walmart yeah walmart walmart has done a phenomenal job julia of expanding its grocery business both in the retail stores themselves as well as digital offerings and click and collect is another kind of buzzword in the retail industry right now where you buy online and then go pick it up actually at the store instead of having it delivered. So Walmart clearly uh, doing very well despite competition from Target, which has a big grocery business, Amazon, which of course owns Whole Foods, and then Kroger. We can't forget the traditional supermarket chains because guess who hasn't forgotten Kroger? Warren Buffett. Kroger shares are up this morning because late Friday, Berkshire Hathaway disclosed it has a very significant stake in Kroger. So that is something that I think is going to be, you know, another interesting wrinkle in the grocery world. Wow, Paul and Monica, all over the retail sector today. Thank you so much for that update there. Now, one man who's very conscious of his delivery network and the carbon footprint that that creates is our Jeff Bezos weighing in on climate change. He says he's devoting $10 billion, and that's just to start with, to help flight climate change. John Defterius joins us on this story. That's a lot of money, John, and can definitely make a difference. What more do we know about Jeff Bezos' plans for this climate tackling fund. Well, we can get to his plans in a second, but think about it. 8% of his uh, net worth is about $10 billion of the 130. So it is the biggest uh, input in terms of the climate change war uh, by a single individual right now. Uh, he says the fund initially, and he could put more into it, is to help scientists, the organizations, even the activists. And the ultimate goal, which is often forgotten, Julia, as you know, to keep the uh, globe from warming up to more than two degrees centigrade by 2050. The idea is to keep it below. Uh, we also have to recognize, though, that there's a lot of internal pressure from some of his 800,000 employees. Now, they applauded the move by Bezos today in the philanthropy. But for example, he says when it comes to Amazon Web Services, uh, why is he still working with oil and gas companies that use those services right now? And it is a carbon intensive business. You have the delivery trucks that you're talking about, the gigantic warehouses, but also the web services eat up a lot of energy. And what I think is fascinating about Amazon, when the workers were talking about going on a big walkout back in September, the day before, he said he would go to net zero emissions by 2040 and also bring in 100,000 electric vehicles. So we have the environmental activists, but also the employee activists right now, which is really changing the narrative within the large companies that suck up energy, particularly in the tech sector. You make a great point, though, about the cloud business, the cloud web services business in particular. I mean, can we make any comparison with some of the other big cloud players here? Because your mind doesn't immediately go to that as being a carbon creator on a relative basis versus the delivery network, which perhaps is easier to point out here. 
No, in fact, you never really think about all the, the data and the energy you're using with a mobile phone, right, uh, Julia? And, and in fact, Amazon was saying they're going to go 50% to renewable energy. They, they hit the target and set that in 2018, but they've been pretty quiet about when they can get to 100%. We saw the uh, announcement from uh, Microsoft on January 20th to go to 100% renewable uh, by 2030. The new CEO of BP, Bernard Looney, last week said they would go net zero as an oil company that's trying to shift to an energy company uh, by 2050. And back in the autumn, I was in California shooting, uh, looking at the energy transition, uh, and you have Apple investing in huge solar farms, and they say in their current activities at the headquarters and the stores, they are 100% renewable. And get this, even in China, with their suppliers, Julia, they're pledging to get to 100% renewable. But they have not set a date uh, for that effort yet. But again, because of the consumer pressure, employee pressure, and folks like Greta, the activists, you see major companies around the world, almost on a weekly basis, making an announcement, whether it's 2030, 2040, or energy companies at 2050. John, we've got a phrase for it, stakeholder capitalism. Hark back to our That's conversations true. in Davos. It'd be interesting to see how quickly he puts his money to work. $10 billion is a lot of money, but when do those grants get made and for how a much? Lot of money. Yeah, we'll see. John Depteris, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring mm -hmm. you up to speed now with some of the other stories that we are following around the world. The Chinese government has ordered reviews by CNN show seven. 180 million people currently have their movements restricted as authorities battle to contain the coronavirus outbreak. Millions living near the epicenter have been ordered to stay in their homes. More than 73,000 people worldwide have been diagnosed now with the infection and 1,800 people have lost their lives. The Boy Scouts of America is filing for bankruptcy. The move comes as the organization faces hundreds of sexual abuse lawsuits, thousands of alleged victims and dwindling membership. The bankruptcy filing suspends the civil lawsuits. Michael Bloomberg has qualified for Wednesday's Democratic presidential debate in Las Vegas. This after scoring above 10% in a national poll for the fourth time. It will be Bloomberg's first time on the debate stage with other candidates vying for the presidency. We'll have much more on this later on in the show. Much more on other things as well. Still to come, Santa's stumble. Walmart joins the retailers reporting an unhappy holiday season. More analysis on that and... Michael Bloomberg makes it onto the Democratic debate stage in Nevada, despite not being on the ballot there. But what kind of showing will he give? Stay with us. We're back after this. To first move live from the New York Stock Exchange, where we are expecting a softer open for U.S. stocks. The first trading day of this holiday shortened week here in the United States. Tech stocks look set to take the biggest hit after Apple's revenue warning for the current quarter. Risk off feels like the name of the game today. Ten year. U.S. Treasury yields ticking lower here, too, at 1.55%. Remember, they were above 1.8% not too long ago. So we've talked a lot about this adjustment in the bond market. Crude oil also lower for the first time in around a week. And safe haven gold remains close to two-week highs. What are we seeing here? Lisa Shallot, the Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management, joins us now. Lisa, great to have you on Good the morning, show. Good morning, Julia. We can talk more broadly, but I do want to talk about the Apple announcement that, that took place sure. last night. And I was sort of gently making the comment earlier on the show that shouldn't we have expected this and continue to see it from corporates? 
Absolutely. I don't think that the supply chain disruptions should be viewed by the market uh, as some big surprise. Um, clearly, there have been signals um, you know, from the Chinese that there's disruption. We know that this has gone on a, a bit longer uh, than we originally thought. So I think we're going to continue to see this kind of thing uh, throughout the quarter. It's tough to forecast. I mean, impossible. I Possible to your point. I mean, about a week into this, I think I clearly remember Goldman Sachs coming out and anticipating a 0.1 best case or a 0.3% hit to global growth as a result of the coronavirus. I, I don't think we know yet. I, I, you know, I think we're yes. really in the camp that says uh, that ultimately history suggests that these types of things are one-offs. That the demand tends to be delayed, not denied. And so that ultimately on the other side of this, whether that comes in March, April, June, July, you can get a V-shaped recovery. So we've kind of held our guns at Morgan Stanley. Um, but look, it, it remains to be seen. But you're still comfortable with the idea of delayed, not denied. Yes. So there will be a demand pickup. Yes once we get through the worst part yes. and obviously we have to um, feel sorry for the people involved so I don't want to focus too much on the money yes. versus anything else yes. to your point but you also raise a good point about the US consumer and actually lower oil prices lower rates here as I was just pointing out have, yes. a, have a benefit for the US yes. consumer. So, so today we were out with a report um, talking about the fact that the US consumer we believe is actually getting a little bit of a dividend here um, from this global disruption. So to your point, um, U.S. consumers are benefiting from much lower oil prices, much lower gasoline prices, much lower commodity prices. The U.S. dollar has materially strengthened, yes. which uh, of course helps uh, American purchasing power for imports, for consumption. Um, so we believe that in the very short term, um, there's some flattering of the consumer data. And in fact, you know, I know we saw um, some disappointing news out of Walmart, uh, but I would not be surprised if Walmart got a little bit of a, uh, a pickup in the second quarter um, from some of these dynamics. It also has an impact on mortgage rates as well. Yes. I mean, those rates have come right down as well. That's exactly longer term right. Rates. Exactly. As we've seen the U.S. stock market benefit from lower rates, the U.S. consumer has certainly benefited from the fact that that 30-year Treasury is flirting with 2%. Um, so our mortgage rates are at, at, at uh, three-year lows right now. One of the things we have pointed out, we keep talking about fresh record highs being made, is that the rally that we're seeing in stocks is narrowing, it's defensive, um, there's a question over to what extent it's passive versus active investment, which is also Absolutely. a critical factor. What's your view on this? So our view is that this makes a lot of sense mm. um, in the, in, from the perspective of that right now um, the market is responding to the Fed's dovishness. Not only low rates, the Fed's participation in the repo market, the Fed's willingness to signal potentially further cuts um, if this global crisis um, continues. And so that is really uh, allowing the market to, quote unquote, do more of the same. And more of the same is rewarding those defensive, growth-oriented, long-duration assets that we've seen for the past 11 years. So 
Um, you know, we're getting one more leg out of this trade. And so you're saying to clients, you can stick with it at this stage. Well, we're saying stick with it, but you're in the, you know, yeah, the, the bottom of gasps. the 11th inning. <laughs> yeah, I know that <laughs> inning could take a long time. That's the, that's the key. Lisa, fantastic to have you on. All right. Thank you so much for that. Good to talk to you, Julia. Lisa Charlotte, the Chief Investment Officer at Morgan Stanley Wealth Management. We are counting down to the opening bell this morning. I can give you a quick look at once again at futures. We are expecting to see a slightly softer open, as you can see, losing some half a percent here um, from the record highs, actually, that we finished Friday's session at for the S&P 500 and for the Nasdaq. Stay with us. Plenty more first move after this. The market open is next. First move live from the New York Stock Exchange and the opening bell for the first time in this holiday shortened week. We were expecting to see a bit of weakness at the open this morning and that is indeed what we are seeing. The Nasdaq and the S&P 500 falling from record highs hit at the final session last week on Friday. This, of course, after Apple's revenue warning late last night reports that the Trump administration is also looking to further limit Chinese access to U.S. chip technology. I think also not helping sentiment in the tech sector as well. What we have seen, though, is the majors rising for two weeks straight amid hopes that the global economy will snap back fast from the coronavirus outbreak. As Lisa Shallot there was just saying, a V-shaped recovery. And I think general consensus is that. The question is, is that too optimistic? Before today, the major, the major markets had risen some 4% or more for February so far. Meanwhile, economists at Moody's are the latest to downgrade their global growth forecasts due to the coronavirus outbreak. Interestingly, Moody's says India will be one of the hardest hit nations with 2020 growth expected to slow to its weakest level in 11 years. Let's walk you through our global movers today. Shares of asset management firm Leg Mason are rallying. Rival firm Franklin Resources is buying the company for some $4.5 billion. The deal creating an investment giant with more than $1.5 trillion worth of assets. Apple, of course, as we've been discussing on the show, opening lower after its revenue warning. Shares of U.S. firms that get a lot of their business from Apple are also under pressure, too, as we discussed as well, not giving any forward guidance on Q2 for revenues here due to the sheer level of uncertainty. Chip firms Skyworks Solutions and LAM Research both falling in early trading to Skyworks, getting about half of its sales from Apple. About Walmart as well, rising after posting weaker than expected profits and revenues. Disappointing holiday sales were to blame. The company's fiscal 2021 outlook also coming in a little bit on the soft side here. Let's talk this through. Charlie O'Shea is at Moody's retail analyst and joins us now. Thank you for bearing with me. Wow, <laughs> stick of my own voice there. What do you make of Walmart's numbers? It's they're pretty good. Really? The holiday was tough for everybody. Amazon grew revenue, but took a big margin hit. Margin dropped 150 basis points year over year in the fourth quarter. We saw target sales results, some softness, some strength. Walmart, some strength, some softness. Waiting to see Best Buy next week. Costco came out with some really good sales numbers for November and December. So it's going to be a mixed bag. The question is, how much did you cut prices? 
to generate those sales. And that's the key thing. There were six fewer shopping days. So we already right. knew that the comparables here were going to be a little bit tough. Right. But you could argue the analysts, therefore, got this wrong. What is your concern? And do you have concerns about that? sort of margin compression here for the sector more broadly? Not really, because it's due to investments rather than any mm. crazy promotions, at least at the top end of the rating scale. You know, the Walmarts, Amazons, Costco's, Targets, Best Buys, TJX's, those guys. At the lower end, those are the folks that have to worry, and they're being exploited by guys at the higher end because they've got more flexibility. You look at balance sheets for those companies I just named, they're all bulletproof. They've got lots of cash, lots of liquidity, so they can do the things they need to do and they can afford to invest in price to grow market share and squeeze the, the smaller guys. Not, not to death, but they can really hurt them from a performance perspective. I mean, the key with, with Walmart here as well is that they had a bricks and mortar business. They've been shifting into e-commerce, better margins, whereas some of the other competitors like the Amazons trying to go the other way right. uh, face the lower margin business and breaking into that and trying to, to monopolize that part of the business. What do you make of what Walmart's managing to achieve here, particularly with grocery? Because I was talking earlier on the show about their infrastructure and the superior nature of the infrastructure delivery network that they've managed to achieve here. We've got 5,400 stores in the U.S. That's a staggering number of physical locations. They can ship from them. They're shipping from about a third of them now. They can do online grocery order and then pick up. They're doing that at about 60% of those stores. Both those numbers are going to grow. So we're going to face a scenario over time where Walmart has over 5,000 locations where you can order online and pick up in store groceries. Where you pull up into the parking lot and they put the stuff in your trunk, that's big for families. It's big for, I can remember when my kids were younger, taking them to the grocery store, it's easier to keep them in the car and put the stuff in the car than <laughs> just to let walk them loose. out. Yes. <laughs> so I think what we're seeing with Walmart is they're going to use food as the engine to grow everything else. And one of the things that came up in the meeting this morning was Doug McMillan saying, we want to be able to do more pickup of general merchandise along with those grocery orders, and that's coming. So Walmart's really unleashing the juggernaut of that brick-and-mortar network, and it's going to make the competitive environment really hard and food for anybody else. You know, I, another point that I was making earlier was that if I look at d food delivery in the UK and in South Korea is another great example, it's around 15% right. of the, the market. In the United States, 2 to 3% Maybe. max? Yeah. How much bigger can that be? That's really the open question because... It's a big if, country. It, well, if it's free, yeah, it can get uh -huh. really big. If it's not free, how big will it get? And where does it scale? It scales in big cities like this. It scales in the UK because you've got dense population in a smaller geography. In the US, it works in cities. Is it going to work in the Midwest? Is it going to work in Kansas and Missouri and places like that? Likely not. But the question for the retailers is, how much how much do I invest in the capability, and what do I do if I overinvest? And that's kind of the, yes, the dance the, they're the, in right now. Yeah, the balancing tightrope yeah. walk that they're all trying to find here. What we didn't see in the forecasts that Walmart gave, and it, it stood out to me, was any impact, any adjustment lower for coronavirus supply chain. Did you hear anything at the meeting today? Same thing in the meeting. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not guiding to any corona impact because they really don't know, and I don't know that anybody really no. knows. It's kind of a similar phenomenon, although much more serious, than what retailers face with tariffs, where they didn't know how long they were going to last. They didn't know if they were even going to be put in place. So you kind of have to take a wait-and-see attitude. From Walmart's perspective, they, they are seeing um, shorter store hours with a lot of the stores in China. Yes. 
and they're really focused on you know, the things they ought to be focused on, which is employee health, customer health, et cetera. But they have to balance that with customers need the stores. So they're they're going through that right now. Yeah, you make a great point. The human impact right. here and dealing with that first is more important than forecasts, quite frankly. Right. Um, Charlie, great to have you with us. Great to be back. Charlie, Charlie thank Yes, you. great to have you on the show. All right, now, if you think Walmart stockholders are feeling a little down, meet Charlene. She works at a Walmart in Maryland and poses with various products on the store's Facebook page. Thanks for that one-of-a-kind expression, she's gone viral and now has legions of fans. Hello, Charlene. Great face. All right. We're going to take a quick break here on First Move, but coming up, lolly, 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 get your Bitcoin here. Okay, maybe not the old grammar school song, but you can earn Bitcoin while you shop. Find out how next on First Move. me laugh. Technical Bitcoin inching closer to the key psychological level of $10,000. Right now we're trading around $9,700 as you can see there, just shy of that. Now I caught up once again with the CEO of Lolly. It's a Bitcoin reward system that literally gives you cash back in the form of the cryptocurrency Bitcoin when you make purchases with their retail partners. Take a listen. What we're trying to do is create the easiest way for people to get into Bitcoin. And we've done so through a cashback model. Uh, we partner with merchants and then those merchants pay us when our users shop their site. And then we send people free Bitcoin to their Lolly wallets. And so what we've seen is a lot of people, uh, Lolly is their first Bitcoin wallet and their first experience in crypto as a whole. It's Bitcoin back based, basically. So yeah. cash back, but crypto back uh, on other purchases. So in the last few months since we spoke to you, talk to me about user growth. Talk to me about the merchants that you're signing on, because you do have some big names on board with this. We do. Um, I mean, everyone from like Priceline to uh, Glossier to uh, Expedia, we have like 900 and over 950 merchants. We're almost at a thousand. Wow! And these merchants are coming on board because they're, they're it's the easiest way for the merchants to get into Bitcoin uh, as well. So it's not just the consumers that we've created an easy on ramp. We're getting mass merchant adoption, and I think some of the biggest merchants uh, in in the world have already joined us today. So can you use your Bitcoin points, your, your lolly wallet to buy things on Expedia, for example. Is it that sophisticated yet or is this simply cashback rewards, you're accruing Bitcoin and you become an owner of a portfolio of, of crypto assets? That's a great way of looking at it. Uh, a lot of our users treat it as an investment. Yeah. Um, I think so. Uh, the the data right now is over 90% of our users just hold it as an investment. Right. Very few actually exchange it out. And I think that's a sign that people are treating it as an investment account. They're treating it as a savings technology, which is, I think, Bitcoin's biggest feature right now. Uh, things that a are happening. A store of value, potentially. Exactly. It's a store of value for most people, and the data supports that. But could it also be about the fact that some, for some of these merchants, they simply don't accept Bitcoin as a way to purchase their goods? So there's a there's a block there, at least for now. Is that some part of the story too? It is. Um, How I many think of the merchants that you're talking to? Very few. Yeah. Uh, about I would say about 10 to 15 of our merchants out of 950 wow. accept it. <clears throat> and I think that's. Um, like one of the only ways we like look at the future is people right now don't want to spend their Bitcoin and rightfully so. Um, since we launched, it's gone up two to three x 
Uh, I can say, yeah, about two to three X today. Um, and so we don't think that people actually want to spend something that is historically for them going up in value. What is the average Bitcoin back that your users are achieving here by using the app, or at least the, um, the function, the tool? So um, our users have earned, or so our users can earn 7% back across all of our different merchants and That's upwards an average. of an average, wow. yeah. And then the uh, the actual, it's about 30%, I think, is our highest uh, today back that you can earn. So some of our merchants are very generous, and they want to give Bitcoin back. They want to give cash back to incentivize these sales. 30% of the value of, of the purchase that, yeah. that a user's making. Mm -hmm. I mean, how big are these purchases? So it, it varies. I, I mean, to start shopping. If, if you think about it, a lot of these digital products have next to no cost for distribution, and their margins are very high. Right. And so when we negotiate, with those merchants, we, we ask them if they can go higher to convert more sales because ultimately we're driving incremental sales for our merchants. You recently tweeted that it's now 100 days, less than 100 days yeah. to the halving. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by halving? Because we've, we've talked about this on the show before. Again, I want to remind our viewers, what is the halving? So the way that people actually, uh, at, at its core, the way that people actually are uh, getting Bitcoin is through mining. Mm. And mining is a very difficult operation. It takes a lot of computing power. And most people are never going to touch mining. It's sort of like, you know, we, we pump gas every day, but we don't have to go, we don't have to be, you know, on the rig and like, you know, mining the actual oil. Um, so there's, there's a whole network of miners out there that are actually getting the Bitcoin for us. And when they get it, there is a block reward that their computers are solving, uh, this very complex algorithm that they're solving, and every 10 minutes, they get that reward if they have solved this algorithm. That reward is gonna go in half, meaning that it's gonna be harder for them to, to get it, meaning that the like all of Bitcoin, hypothetically, because there will be less supply with the same amount of demand, hypothetically, it should go up in value, less supply, more demand, and that's the idea behind the having More relative demand. You know, mm -hmm. every traditional investor that invests in traditional products here will be shouting at the television going, the whole point about financial markets and the way these things work is the moment you know something's going to happen, the price adjusts. Mm -hmm. So if it's less than 100 days, the moment that halving was mentioned and everyone understood what it was, the price would adjust. Is the halving already in the price, the impact of it already in the price in your mind? I, I personally don't think so. Why? Because there's there's so many, Bitcoin has only reached a, a tiny percent of the population. We don't and understand so, it yet. People don't understand it. and. Uh, I think that the institutional capital is still being set up. Like, you know, when I talk to my friends on the other side, like we're on the consumer side, we're making the easiest on-ramp. But when I talk to my friends that are in the deep institutional side that have the, you know, billion dollar hedge funds, they're still like waiting. They're still like deploying, like ready to deploy capital. And I just don't think that it has been priced in yet. I think people want to see what this first happening, because this is the first happening after the run-up in 2017. We've never, we have no context of what happens when the masses now understand what the halving is. So potentially in the in like the one in four years, we might see something more priced in. Right now, I just don't think that there's enough savvy investors out there that really understand uh, what what is priced in, what's not, and what it actually means. The Lolly CEO there. Right, we're going to take a break. Up next.
text. A surge in opinion polls means Michael Bloomberg now qualifies for the Democratic debate in Las Vegas. What kind of show will that mean? We'll discuss after this. Welcome back to First Move with a look at today's boardroom brief. The CEO of Nissan telling shareholders they should sack him if he can't pull the company out of its current slump. Makoto Yoshisha is trying to arrest falling profits and move on from the ongoing Carlos Ghosn scandal. He told the auto giant shareholder meeting, if circumstances remain uncertain, you can fire me immediately. The American Home Furnishings retailer Pier 1 has filed for bankruptcy. The troubled Texas-based firm will try to find a buyer. Around 400 stores have already closed or started closing down sales. Tesla CEO Elon Musk took a shot at his fellow billionaire Bill Gates, saying his conversations with the Microsoft founder have been, quote, underwhelming. Gates, on the other hand, had just praised Tesla for leading the car industry's conversion to electric power. So what's riling Musk? Possibly the fact that Gates' new car isn't a Tesla, but the latest electric Porsche Taycan. Ouch. In what could ultimately result in another battle of the billionaire's millionaire millionaire, sorry, Michael Bloomberg has qualified for Wednesday's Democratic debate. The appearance in Nevada will begin his first on stage with his 2020 rivals. CNN political analyst Catherine Rample joins me now, getting a bit overexcited there between millionaires and billionaires. Catherine, great to have you on the show. Speaking of millions, though, I don't suppose we should really be that surprised given the sheer scale of advertising spending that the Bloomberg campaign has undergone. What no do you kidding. make of this latest poll? Uh, well, it certainly suggests that Bloomberg's ad blitz to date has been effective. I think he spent something like $400 million on political advertising at this point, which is more than double what his uh, next rival has spent, who was another billionaire in the race, Tom Steyer. Uh, so certainly that has been helpful to him. He's been able to control the narrative around him. He's been able to tell his story. He hasn't exactly been battle-tested, at least on a national stage uh, to date, because uh, he, he was a late entrant. Up until recently, the other candidates in the race had not been paying a lot of attention to him. Up until recently, the media had not been um, giving him the uh, the full scrutiny that some of the other uh, front-runners uh, had been subject to. So we'll have to see uh, whether that lead persists, or whether those, those strong numbers, rather, persist once he takes the debate stage and once he's subject to more scrutiny. You know, he had a tough weekend in the press. For people in the United States, they'll have read articles dating back to the 80s and the 90s, bawdy, boorish, let's call it, behavior. How popular is he going to be if we're talking on a national scale with those on the more extreme left of the party, the anti-billionaire movement, women, perhaps, those of I color, given the stop and frisk? What are so your thoughts I here? So I do think he has quite a bit of baggage to deal with. And as you pointed out, it's it's recently um, gotten a little bit more attention, partly because he's been doing better in the polls. Comments that he's made about women, comments that he's made about African-Americans, uh, and, in, and in particular, the uh, effects of his stop and frisk policy, which predated him, but he ramped up as mayor of New York City. Um, uh, you know, surveillance of, uh, of mosques, things like that. So he has quite a bit of baggage. And the question is, is will uh, Democrats be willing to ignore that? Will they say, well, we don't like that stuff, but he's the lesser of two evils? Or will, uh, you know, 
um, people on the left in particular say this is just not acceptable as a standard bearer for our party and we won't support him or if he if he ends up becoming uh, the nominee we won't come out to vote so there's a real question here he, he does have some appeal based on some of his policies uh, unrelated to the stuff we're talking about um, amongst Republicans that that could pit him as an effective contender against Trump but he also has a lot of other baggage uh, that will weigh him down. Now, someone who certainly has uh, attentions being caught here is President Trump, to your point. He actually tweeted this morning, the crooked DNC, the Democratic National Convention, working overtime to take the Democratic nomination away from Bernie again. Watch what happens to the superdelegates in round two, a rigged convention. Catherine, is President Trump afraid of uh, meeting Mike Bloomberg head on here? I think he very well might be. Bloomberg has certainly been good at pushing Trump's buttons on Twitter and elsewhere, talking about the size of his fortune, um, talking about his reputation within New York City, things like that. So Bloomberg has been effective at uh, getting under Trump's skin. Again, whether he would actually be, um, you know, the most competitive general uh, election nominee for the Democrats is is a little bit hard to know at this point, but Trump certainly doesn't like dealing with him. And I think in that tweet that you just showed, Trump, in addition to whatever feelings he has about Bloomberg, Trump is also clearly trying to rile up um, the, the base of the, uh, the left-wing base of the Democratic Party that was quite unhappy about how the 2016 uh, Democratic primary was handled. And they may be, they may continue to be unhappy if they think that, uh, uh, Sanders has somehow been robbed of his rightful claim to the nomination. And it goes, of course, to a billionaire yes. uh, whom Sanders has spent basically like his Trump career running against. Be upset about that, too. <laughs> Catherine. Yes. Naughty. Catherine, great to have you on. <laughs> Catherine Rample, CNN political commentator. That just about wraps up the show. You've been watching First Move. Time to go make yours. Have a great Tuesday. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.